All right, let me turn this light on so it's a little brighter. Okay. How's everything over there? It's going good. We just finished uh, an intern meeting. So talking about uh, the blending of the technical aspects, the, the uh, tactical, the skill, mechanics, um, game strategy, the physical and the uh, psychological, how all those pieces combine with the, uh, to, to basically create ultimate health and uh, performance for athletes. Cool. Cool. Thank you for your time, man. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. What do you want to that, talk about today? So first, can you introduce yourself? Like for yeah. the coaches in Taiwan? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Zach Dakent. I am a strength and conditioning coach or director of baseball uh, performance at TCU, which is Texas Christian University. Uh, I've been here for 15 years. Prior to that, I was uh, with the Anaheim Angels for two years. So uh, everything is, is baseball oriented. Cool. I, I saw a lot of like, is it like basketball, football, that kind of stuff on your Instagram? Yeah, so I used to I used to train football. I played college football, and um, yeah, I've uh, we I trained football up until COVID, basically. Yes. Okay. So yeah, but in reality, I train baseball athletes, very similar to track athletes, right? We we yeah. jump a lot. We're gonna we're gonna throw implements. Uh, we're gonna get them fast, powerful, strong. So. We train them. I mean, we take pieces of every sport and try to blend those together holistically to, to create the best athlete we can. Yeah. So today's question kind of based on what I saw on your Instagram and what you said on other podcasts. Yeah. So sorry, you cut out there for me. You cut out for a second there. What did you say now? So today's question will be based on oh, the thing, I, you, yeah, the thing you post on Instagram, and maybe other things you talk on the other podcast. Yeah, absolutely fine. Go ahead. So the first thing I I was like caught my eye was you post a lot of like pregame lift, mm -hmm. right, on your Instagram. So the pregame lift basically was the same day on the game day, right? Like eight it, hours before you post it, right? Yes. So why you why would you do a like a lift on the the game day? So with baseball, one of the obviously you know how many times baseball plays a game in a year, right? So yeah. at the professional level, at the professional level they're playing every single day. Um High school during the summer, these kids are playing four or five times a week a lot of times. The biggest thing that we need with our youth, our high school athletes, our college athletes, is consistency in the weight room. And that's what often gets lost is you, you play so much that you lose the consistency. And when you don't have that consistency, soreness starts to creep in. We get, uh, we get increased stiffness. And if you stay on track and keep your lifting consistent, you don't have that problem. And baseball isn't generally fatiguing enough, especially as a position player. It's not fatiguing enough that we can't do a light lift 
to stimulate the body. And when I say light, I don't necessarily mean lightweight. I'm talking about volumes. If we have a low volume lift, we can stimulate the body so that it honestly performs at a little bit higher level sometimes. But we just need to maintain consistency. All of our lifts are very non-fatiguing. So we're not trying to make guys tired with these things. But we stay on track. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. One of the biggest problems I saw in professional baseball, and then when I first got to TCU, pitchers, your relief pitchers, would possibly throw this weekend. You'd have a, you'd have a coach say, hey, we're going to need him this weekend a lot. Let's not have him lift. And so he wouldn't lift. And then he wouldn't throw, right? Your starter would yeah. go something like that, and he would never throw. And then they'd say, well, you know, he'll throw tomorrow. Let's not lift him. And then he wouldn't throw. And before you know it, it was 10 days, and the kid hadn't lifted. And then what's, what happens? He lifts, and he gets super sore, and he complains to coach. And then yeah. he says, don't lift him. We can't have him sore. He's, you know? And I eliminated that problem by saying we are going to be consistent with our training, whether it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or however we set it up. I will adjust the workout to the stress for the day. But we are going to be in there and be consistent regardless. So we can adjust the workout very easily on a game day, but we're still going to come in and do that stuff. Okay. But so this is for baseball, right? Yes. The way you program this is because the 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 game that baseball play was was like so many. But how about? Like if it's like football, it happened. The game was like every Saturday or every Sunday. So, so in that case, if we were playing, if we had football, no, I wouldn't because the stress, the stresses are extremely high. That's why football only plays one game a week. So you're facing a ton of stress. Um, there's, there's no need to lift on a game day because you have the entire week to get your training sessions in. That's not the case with baseball because oftentimes we play five games a week. Okay, got it, man. Yeah. Thanks. So, I also saw a lot of like in-season programming, like heavy, heavy safety bar split squad, huh? and a lot of front squad. Like, yes. Why is it like safety bar split squad, and why is it like front squad instead of back squad? So the reason, and for your coaches, I, uh, I wrote a book called Movement Over Maxis. That's essentially what our foundation program is. So every athlete that comes into our program, they go through that foundation program. And we teach the squat pattern as a front squat. One of the reasons that we use the front squat so much is because the incidence of pars fractures in our youth athletes pars fractures are essentially a stress fracture in the lumbar spine so from uh from over rotation well i shouldn't say from over rotation our athletes our youth athletes our high school athletes so teenage athletes i should say get pars fractures because they play so much they don't have good strength they don't have the uh they don't have good skill a lot of times they over rotate on their swings they take a ton of swings they can't control their pelvis. They have no spinal stability, no core stability, trunk stability, whatever you want to call it. And so you're constantly ramming these vertebrae together. That's what creates a stress reaction and eventually a stress fracture. And it's because of rotation and extension from those vertebrae hitting each other. 
Yeah. And the back squat often puts our athletes in more extension. So yeah. a front squat eliminates that problem a lot of times because you can't go into extension because the weight's pulling you down. So you have to create extension through muscle activation instead of the other way, which yeah. you athletes squat down and, and you've seen athletes do a back squat bad a hundred thousand times, right? Yeah. They muscle up a back squat in a horrible, horrible technique and still get it up. But you can't do that on a front squat. If you do, you end up dropping the bar. And so the front squat for our athletes and our purposes was a lot healthier on spines and, and backs. So that's why we choose to go with the front squat as our foundational movement pattern. Now, to answer the second piece of your question, which was the hand-assisted split squat, that is what our advanced athletes move to after they are strong enough. So when they've been in the program a long enough duration, they will move to that hand-assisted split squat, and that's all they train. They do not squat anymore. We've already found that they have enough strength, and so we try to build um, – we essentially try to build power. That becomes their emphasis, power development. And we use heavy weight with that to create a stimulus for our jumps that happen after that. We use heavy weight. Uh, sometimes we use lightweight. And we do it really, really fast. But that's the movement that they go to when they advance out of the foundation program, essentially. Cool. So I saw same as the same come from Instagram. So the safety bar split score. You usually like the the split split squat was like usually so heavy. Is there like uh, like how heavy would they go? Yeah. So we actually use super maximal with the split squat, which means they are going heavier than they can actually lift. And the reason we're doing that is because super maximal eccentrics help to build essentially it's for use for power development we can stimulate we only use one rep on these exercises but they will use 110 to 120 percent above their max so if their max is uh let's say their max is 100 pounds which obviously for our guys much more but 100 pounds they actually have to use 110 to 120 pounds and we go down as slow as we can resisting because you can handle more eccentrically than you can concentrically. So we can handle more going down than you can going up. So we make them fight that and resist the eccentric as hard as they can. And then they can help their, use their hand to stand up. And then from there we go and we utilize those turned on motor units in our jumps. So we do ballistic jumps, we do throws, we do reactive jumps. Uh, the program is built around power development and we use those heavy lifts to turn on the motor units. And then once they're turned on, we want to use them in our powerful in powerful movements. So like post-activation potentiation, right? Yeah, essentially that's kind of the gist, yes. Cool. That was like so like one hundred ten or one hundred and twenty percent, right? Yes. So Which, based on Based on what, what I saw on your Instagram, your athlete was, like, so strong, man. So, yeah, they're they're pretty strong. So, I've had guys that can go uh, with that lift for 100%. I've had guys that have gone up over 500 pounds, 500 to 600 pounds, somewhere in that range, yes. Split squat? Yeah. 
single leg, yeah, that, that, that uh, split squat, hand assisted. That's using hands. But there's, there's like always like, there's always going to be like debate about how heavy should they squat, right? right. Usually there's going to be like two times body weight. So if it's like a single leg squat, probably like half of the weight, right? Or you, a little bit more. You'd be surprised just because you're still using both your legs. It's just that they're split apart. Yeah. But you can handle a lot. You could probably handle about as much on that split squat with your hands as you can in a hand-assisted squat. You'd be very surprised. So I'm not worried about how much weight they handle in that because – the goal of the program is power development. I'm only using it for one rep. They might have three total sets of one rep. So the goal isn't, we're not, we're not using a ton of energy to build strength. It's to build power development, right? So that's kind of the difference too. Just for stimulation. It's just for stimulation, yes. I can't do that with my uh, incoming athletes, my young athletes. We can't handle a front squat or a back squat for that type of uh, that type of weight. It's too dangerous. Cool. So there's another post on Instagram talk about like vertical in integration, about like periodization, right? Yeah. So why vertical inter integration? Yes. So uh, just to give your uh, listeners and everybody on today what vertical integration is. Vertical integration is, is basically we're keeping all pieces of the program in at all times. We're only changing the volumes. So instead of a program that does strength and then hypertrophy or hypertrophy, then strength, then power, and we're working each one in separate blocks over the course of four to six weeks, the problem becomes that when you don't do something for a long time, you have to reintroduce it at lesser volumes and intensities and try to regain what you might have lost. Well, with vertical integration, we don't lose anything. And the biggest factor is really speed. So all sports are built around speed and power. And if we use that block system where we said hypertrophy and then strength and then power for this four to six weeks, and then eventually we get out here to speed, well, if we haven't been doing our speed work, we've lost a lot of those gains because you can lose speed gains in as short as seven days. And so in order to keep ourselves ready and, and in order to be able to adapt at all times to anything that we want, we have to keep all pieces in the program at all times. We just change the volumes. So if I need my guys to be stronger, I need to get stronger, we still do a little speed work. We do a little power work, and then we're going to do more on the strength side. If I need speed development, I see a problem in our program. We're not fast enough. We're going to do a lot of speed. Then we're going to do a little power and a little strength. We want to maintain all those other pieces, but we're going to take most of our adaptation energy and send it to one or two different qualities. So it's like if it's like preseason, if I want to work on max strength, so the max strength would be like more. The volume for max strength would be like more. But if it's like in-season training, if I want to like improve their speed, yeah. so the speed side would be like more, right? Exactly. Yes. You're, everything's present all the time. We're going to do it all. 
It's just we can change the volumes of how much we're actually doing to one or two different qualities to emphasize those a little bit more. Cool. So next question would be like, I saw a same as same. This is come, this come from Instagram and you post like, you don't do a lot of like Olympic lifting. Instead of instead of Olympic lifting, you do a lot of like bounding, speed work, jumping. Yep. Like, can't tell like the coaches in Taiwan about why. Yeah. So the Olympic lifts for us, the uh, the 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 juice isn't worth the squeeze. If you want the truth, um, Olympic lifts they take a long time to teach. Often they take a long time to get to utilize enough weight to actually matter in power improvement or power development. A lot of my athletes have never Olympic lifted before, which can be beneficial, but it can often take a long time to train and teach those. Yeah. To me, for me, it's way more time efficient with a large group because I have 50 athletes sometimes at one time. I can get the, I can get those improvements faster and with less uh, time teaching in med ball throws, in jumps, in speed development, and we are more specific to their actual sport because their sport isn't played with a barbell. So I can get very specific in speed work, in jumping, in med ball throws. We can train those things that train the exact same thing that the Olympic lift train, that the Olympic lifts train, but we can do it more specific to the actual sport, to the movement patterns, to the speeds, to the velocities that happen in sport. So the same concept goes with like basketball, like football, right? So if I want to improve my basketball player or my football player on speed or like vertical jump, maybe not like Olympic lifting, maybe like more bounding or, or more acceleration that would help more, right? Yeah, there's, there's, you could use it with any athlete. Now I'm not saying the Olympic lifts are bad, I love the Olympic lifts. I used to be trained in them, but you you can achieve the same, if not better, benefits on field from speed jumps and throws versus Olympic lifting. Right? Olympic lifting is yeah. it can create some general power. Sure, there's good things about it, but I can be much more specific to what an athlete actually needs on field by doing the stuff on field. Yeah. So. Basically, like, if I like, if I'm gonna train like a basketball team, and what if I just don't teach them how to Olympic lift? Uh, the way I maybe I just teach them how to accelerate, teach them how to bounding, and do some maybe like. Heavy, lift, heavy lifting and like post-activation potential and sprinting, that will work, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things that we utilize in place of Olympic lifts are our trap bar jumps. So we use loaded jumps all the time. It's going to be very similar to the Olympic lift. And a lot of times with my guys, because there's not a learning curve with technique, they can use heavier weights faster in a trap bar jump than they can an Olympic lift. And... Again, 
we're, we're, we're seeing faster speeds because they're jumping versus just trying to propel, propel the object, which is the barbell in Olympic lifts. They're jumping. And we can get some of the same exact benefits from that in a way faster time frame, way yeah. than Olympic lifting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fully on board with, with, uh, with basketball doing that. I mean, there's, there's so many ways. There's so many ways to do what we yeah. do, right? Yeah, yeah. What's optimal? Because there's ideal and there's optimal. Ideal is, well, Olympic lifts are really good. They're beneficial. They've increased power. But the optimal may be, that it's not time efficient for me to teach it to 40 yeah. hours. The optimal may be that the kids don't know how to clean, so it's going to take us six months to learn the technical aspect and to get strong enough to actually observe the physical aspect. Yeah, of yeah. And so you have to be optimal for your situation. Cool. Thanks, thanks, man. Yeah. Because there's, there's, like, there's like coaches in Taiwan, they're all when they like talk about like improving their vertical or like improving their speed, they always go to like Olympic lifting, maybe like hang high pole, clean or snatch, that kind of stuff. I, it, I'm not saying that is not good, but it's like you have to get so heavy. Yeah. So they have the, they have the adaption, right? Right. Well, the other thing too with the human body, it's the said principle. Specific specific adaptations come from the uh, imposed demands, and there's nothing more specific in trying to create a higher vertical jump than jumping. Yeah, right? is going to adapt to that. So, if if we need our players to be faster, to be more powerful, to jump higher, to throw a ball farther, these things happen on the lighter side or the faster side of the force velocity spectrum, right? Yeah. Doing those things are going to create specific adaptation. And so that's the same thing with heavy squats. Eventually, heavy squats don't give us that much return. It's great for building robustness and maybe building some more strength. But eventually, that doesn't transfer to anything that happens on the field because the stuff that happens on the field happens way, way faster. Yeah. Since you brought about the force velocity curve and the speed on the court, I want to ask, about your thoughts on over speed training like using a band maybe put it on a rack and use it to jump assistant jump so with the over speed stuff i actually think that's good we use it uh with our with our players for jumps the one place i would be hesitant or i don't use it is with speed so i never pull guys faster than their their than they can normally run. Everything we do is resisted. The only way I would do it in speed development is with what they have now, a 1080 sprint, which is essentially a, I mean, it's a computer that can, that can regulate how much tension they're pulling you with. Because traditionally when you pull an athlete with a band or something really, really fast, you can't regulate and monitor how yeah. fast, how much over speed they're doing. And so what you have happen is you pull them forward, they're planting in front of their hips. You put a massive stress through their hamstring. And a lot of times the result is an injury or a strain. And so we don't do overspeed uh, over sprinting. One other way you could do it is on a slight decline hill. Yeah. Uh, one way or with the wind. I know Dan Paff, he's a sprint coach at Altus in Arizona. Dan Paff likes it 
downhill or with the wind as much as you can. But that's giving you very, very minimal effect. And so what you see a lot of times with overspeed sprinting is guys just get pulled way too hard. Yeah. Hamstring injuries occur. But on the jumping side, I absolutely love it. I think it's I think it's a great method to use. But don't you don't you think it's like the force applied to the ground was much lesser than what we usually do? Yeah. That's why I think it's great. I actually think it can be very good for beginners to learn some of the uh to, to learn some of the mechanics and and like the reactivity that's involved in jumping, they can apply force a little bit. I shouldn't say force faster. They are applying it faster. They're ground contact time. They can apply it faster. They can learn how to pull their toes up and how to have full foot contacts because they're not, they can jump higher with it. They've got less weight. And uh, I think it can be good for beginners as well. Cool. So how about, how about what if it's like, athletes for more advanced would it help it like jump higher so we uh yes we do use that with our advanced guys we do it in the french contrast so french contrast is a basically a heavy heavy loaded movement to stimulate motor units then we're going to go into a jump something elastic and then we're going to go into a uh something ballistic generally like i would use trap bar jumps there something that's a moderate weight that we can move pretty fast. And then we finish with the fastest movement of all, which would be a band assisted jump. We use that French contrast with our advanced guys all the time. Yes. I, I think it's great for all athletes. Thanks, man. Thanks. So I saw like a lot of like, a lot of like crawling yep. and like rotation movement. Uh -huh. And there's a book, your program called Movement Over Max, right? Yep. So what is exactly the 3D movement you would like prepare for your athlete? So what 3D movement prep is, is it's essentially our, it's, it's our dynamic warm-up. And it goes through our traveling skills, specifically our traveling skills, which are our run patterns, our karaoke, our low gallop, and our high gallop. And it, details how we use those traveling patterns to develop more skills and create coordination and spatial awareness, how we teach our athletes how to move in space. And we use those patterns in every direction. So the karaoke pattern, you typically think of it as being lateral karaoke, but we use it forward. We use it backward. We can add hops into it. We can add jumps and skips. We can uh, create more width going side to side. That's actually one of the patterns we utilize today. Our kids have become very good at backward karaoke. Well, now we're going to use it to gain space side to side so that they have to create width every time that they move. Um, it, it details all those traveling patterns and how we build those patterns from beginner to advanced throughout our dynamic warm-up, essentially. Because one of the biggest questions I used to get asked was, what do I do for a warm-up? How do you warm up your guys? What do we do for a pregame warm-up? And so this is one of the ways that we can challenge neuroplasticity, which is the body's ability to gain new skills. And everybody thinks it stops at the age of 12 or 13, but that's not true at all. And so we want to challenge our athletes in those warm-up periods to develop new movement solutions and new movement skills. And that's really all 3D movement prep is, is learning how to move your body all over the place. So it's like, it's like, increasing the 
like add different things to their training so they won't get hurt right increasing yeah. the variety of training yeah and it also becomes extensive plyometrics it becomes our our, our extensive jumps when we start to build in some of our one or our one two and two two one two two patterns which are essentially hops and skips when we build in those it becomes extensive plyometrics in our traveling skills so that kind of eliminates two birds with one stone okay we mentioned a lot of like post activation potentiation or like french contract training right yep. today so like how would you program it for like in season or off season wise so for us i use it i i really only use it for our advanced guys um those guys when they get in season like we talked about they do the heavy the heavy stuff but when i eliminate strength work eventually we eliminate strength work heavy heavy strength work and everything becomes power based for those guys we use our pitch arc or an immovable object i should say we use an immovable object and we have them push against that object it's essentially an isometric it's a six second isometric and they build up as much tension and try to create as much force whether it's a squat whether it's a push-up position as much force as possible to turn on the motor units again and then they go and they do their power work. That's how we handle it in the uh, in season. In the off season, we talked about it already. It's that heavy. It's usually those heavy eccentrics and isometrics. And then we go into their power work. So once we get into the in season, we don't use the weight as much. We use a lot more isometrics against immovable objects to create that PAP first. So it's it's like it's like ISO and then max jump. Is it? Like, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. ISO and max jump, because you're turning on the motor units with the isometrics, and then we're going to display it. We're going to express it in power development. Man, that was so smart. <laughs> so smart. I steal that from other people. Don't worry. That good coaching is. You just you have to steal ideas, right? Yeah. The way I mean, the way you answered the question. And the thing you mentioned, it from all this stuff you told me, it was like you were so knowledge. The knowledge, it was like, man, it really, it really is an honor to talk to you, man. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to be that honored to talk to me, though. I'm happy to do it. You know, the other thing I would say on PAP is that at the younger level, the high school level. A lot of coaches, we talked about it already with uh, workouts before games. I challenge our high school coaches and say, hey, you can use your workout before a game day as a warm-up. So have the kids go in, do their three sets of one or three sets of two on a trap bar deadlift, have them do a jump, have them do a med ball throw, something that's explosive, and they'll have the best batting practice of their life because that, in essence, is PAP right there. You're turning on motor units. Yeah. You're activating the central nervous system and then the kids go out that's become that that is their warm-up and then they'll they'll crush balls and bp you know we've I all think that, yeah i think we've that all, we're, sorry sorry continue man no i'm sorry i we've all gone out we've all gotten into uh um 
done a throwing program or went out and throwed with a pitcher or somebody. He'd done something athletic after we lifted, whether it was going out and dunking basketballs or, you know, shooting three pointers or whatever the case. After you've lifted and you've been like, man, I feel really, really good. I'm super loose. I'm warmed up. My nervous system feels amazing. And that's the same effect that kids get from a, a quick workout, a 15 or 25 minute workout before they go out to BP to play a game. But like how, like how long or how much time before the game or like if it's like game day lift and if it's if it's like for basketball because I'm I'm working with the pro basketball team right now. Yep. So if I want to do it for my basketball player, like how much time should I get them, give them the rest before the game? Yeah, I mean I don't I don't necessarily have a, a specific answer for you. The more rest they have, the more you could do, right? But you always got to be concerned about fatigue. So. The game day lift is really just to stimulate, not annihilate. It's only stimulation. So to me, if it's going to be close to game time or close to uh, whatever, pregame, that takes over as your warm-up. That becomes your warm-up. And you can get, you know, you can get 20 or 25 minutes of work in and prepare them for, for what's coming up very easily. The thing is, is chase intensity and chase speed instead of volume. Yeah. Now, volume so for us a typical game day workout for our position players would be two warm-up sets on the trap bar and then we're doing two to three sets of basically one or two reps at most and we have guys that might go up to 90 percent but generally we're probably in that 60 to 80 percent range the barbell's moving fast and then we might go over and do one jump of some variety and come back superset those back and forth we do a med ball throw, and we're essentially out the door. And that's it. Cool. Last question, and, and I'm going to let you go, okay? Sure. What are, what are your thoughts on velocity-based training? And how would you implement it into your program? So, I think velocity-based training is great. I think the best thing about using a something something to track velocity is the objective immediate feedback that you get for your athletes because that drives intent and when you drive intent you can drive speed power and strength gains i should say power and strength that's the beauty of vbt um you don't have to necessarily use it as it's been prescribed in that you know this is this range here 0.7 to 1.0 or whatever works speed strength or strength speed and uh, you don't necessarily have to excuse me you don't have to use it in that aspect you can use it in all your training and and that objective immediate feedback it helps your athletes to drive intent how we use it in season with our position players in the foundation program is we use it to auto regulate so i set zones so i set a speed for the day if they're in that speed that weight is fine if they jump out of that speed above it, that means they're probably a little bit um, – they're operating at a higher, uh, a higher output for the day, right? They're a little bit more recovered than we thought or whatever the case is. They're stronger than we thought for the day. So we'll add weight to get back in that zone. If they drop below that zone, that's telling you they're fatigued. 
And so it's too much weight. And so we'll drop the weight a little bit so that they come back up into that zone. So it auto-regulates their weight based on how they feel. And that is how we use it in season. And I can do it that way because, um, well, we have, uh, I've got six Tendo units for one, but I do it that way because it uh, maintains strength very, very easily. And I don't have to use a bunch of heavy, I don't have to bang a bunch of heavy weight. So yeah. uh, we usually stick in ranges of about 40 to 70%. Sometimes we'll use accommodating resistance in the form of chains, but we can maintain strength during that time with our starters super, super easy and, and um, not have to use heavy weight to beat your body up if you want the truth, because there's a kind of an anatomical cost with heavy ass weight, right? Yeah. And so that's part of the process. Just outside of the nervous system fatigue, you have that anatomical cost and joint health and everything like that. So lighter weights, <clears throat> excuse me, lighter weights we found to be a little bit more friendly. So it's like if it's like the, let's say, maybe like Tuesday or like Wednesday. And today we're, we're going to be focusing on like speed strength. Is everybody's like the, the speed? Is it the same? Yeah. Is the zone, speed zones the same? Yeah, so what we'll do is I'll set, the, let's say uh, an example would be uh, from 0.7 to 0.8. We'll set that and say on the Tindo unit, I'll give them a starting weight usually, all right? So let's say it's the first, first day of a four-week block. I will give them a starting weight, and I'll say your speed needs to be in between 0.7 and 0.8. After that first set, they'll know whether they need to increase or decrease weight. Yeah. Then they'll be in that zone, all right? They'll operate in that zone. So let's say four or five sets in, they start busting out of that zone. That's telling you that they're they're becoming activated. They're a little stronger than we thought today, so they're going to increase their weight to come back in that zone. Yes, everybody will use the same zone. And then once we have the first day out of the way, they know for the rest of the cycle what weight to start at that was in that zone the last time. They'll, they'll start with what they finished with, essentially, and see if they can increase or decrease. But it drives output. It drives competition. Um, it, 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 the objective feedback, just it, it creates output for your guys. Got but it, man. Measuring anything, velocity, whether it's um, timing your speed, measuring jumps on a just jump or a force plate or something like that, that objective feedback drives intent. They've done studies on it that the group that had objective feedback immediately far greatly uh, outperformed over the uh, over the short term and long term yeah. the group didn't have objective feedback yeah and it also it's embedded testing because then you don't have to test your athletes all the time because you're constantly getting numbers and data and information to reevaluate your program instead of waiting 16 weeks and saying okay let's max and let's see if you got stronger that didn't yeah. test thanks man Absolutely. Appreciate, it. Appreciate it. So, like, I know you got a, like, speed course and books, right? So, can you tell the coaches in Taiwan about your work? Like, what, what, the education and the books? Yeah. And where can they contact you? 
Yeah, so social media is just my name, Zach Dakin. You can I have a website, ZachDakin.com, and then Twitter, Instagram, where I post most of my stuff. Those are both handled at Zach Dakin. Um, Movement Over Maxes is the program that details – it's the book that details our foundation program. So every athlete that comes into our, our baseball program goes through – how to they learn how to jump they learn how to land they learn how to uh, they learn the sprint basics that we teach them they learn athletic positions and then the five big movement patterns those come with the programs we actually detail the program itself so you get programs with that and then on top of that i've written the uh the eight week speed course which details kind of a progression into speed over eight weeks as well as 3d movement prep which we already talked about teaches teaches coaches how to uh how to build and create warm-ups, right, that, that develop your athletes. It comes with 10 different warm-up templates that I use, and I think it's got 150-plus exercise video demonstrations. So it's, it's really just to educate coaches on how to build and use that time, how to build their warm-ups and use that time to create better movers and better, uh, better athletes. Thanks, man. Thank you for the time. Appreciate it. Anytime. I really, I, I really love the way you answered the question, and the content was really good. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a like a broadcast next week to translate all this into Mandarin. Thanks, man. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, Eric. Learned a lot. Appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Thank you for the time. Yep. Thank you. See you. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's all for today.